Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on, a great, on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example to those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority and heap abuse on, the, on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them! They have taken the way of Cain, and they have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feasts, eating with you without the, the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind, autumn, wind, autumn, wind, autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame, wandering stars for whom the blackest, darkest has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts that they have committed in their ungodliness and of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But dear friends... Remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, In the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourself in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To, who he, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before the glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Saviour be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all, before all ages. 
now and forevermore. Amen. Well, that packs a punch, doesn't it? Let me lead us in prayer and we'll get stuck into it together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that today you speak to us in your word and only ever always for our good to make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ, to assure us of our salvation in him and to protect us from things that would undermine the good work of, uh, of Jesus on our behalf. Help us now, Father, to rejoice and to tremble at your word and to take it to heart. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, me being me, on the very day that uh, change is possibly something we think about more than any other day with a whole New Year's resolution thing going on, of course I'm going to take this one in seven year opportunity to be contrary and speak about things that will remain constant as opposed to change in the year of our Lord 2023. God's holiness, his sovereign goodness and control of all things, his love, his mercy, his kindness that will remain constant. The fact that Jesus Christ is the risen Lord in who alone there is salvation and who is soon to return to judge the living and the dead, that will remain constant. The fact that God the Holy Spirit is the great evangelist who convicts people of the truth of the gospel and transfers them from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of his son and allows us to grow in the likeness of Jesus through the illumination of the word, that will remain constant. Less positively, death will also remain constant. There are some people who will be with us this morning here online who will not be this time next year in all likelihood. Taxes, much less importantly, but they'll remain constant as well. You know what else is going to remain constant this year? Those stupid internet and mobile scammers. Who's had an increased number of texts and emails and things and you just know it's like, oh, you haven't paid this bill, like what bill? You, yeah, it just seems to be, you know, a proliferation of those things the last few years. And you know why? Because they work. 99.9% .9 of people know it's a scam, but that point one that don't, they get sucked in, they make the whole thing worthwhile. That's why scams will be a constant in 2023. But brothers and sisters, in these last days, another thing that sadly will remain constant also is the existence and the influences of false teachers. Our Lord himself, Jesus Christ, taught that the last days would be marked by false messiahs and false prophets. The Apostle Peter, the head apostle, taught that just as there were false prophets within Israel, so there will always be false teachers within the church. The Apostle Paul warned of false apostles who masquerade as apostles of Christ. The Apostle John says that one of the clearest evidences we're in the last days, in his expression, hyperbole, the last hour, is precisely because even within the first century there are already many anti Christ's, people that present something or put themselves in place of, anti the Lord Jesus. Just as in a fallen world, it's right to expect that the world will oppose Jesus and his followers, well, one of the forms of opposition to the truth will come from within Christendom. People who appear to be godly and yet whose goal, whether wittingly or not, is to undermine the truth. This is in fact one of the biggest single themes in the New Testament, which is extraordinary because we don't like to think about it, it's a bit of a dark and negative theme, but this is one of the big ticket items in God's Word. How ought Jesus' followers stand for truth and against false teachers and their influence? Well, fittingly, near the end of our Bibles, we have a few short letters that deal precisely with this constant problem, one of which, of course, is the letter written by Jude. Uh, Jude was brother to the leader 
of the original church, the church in Jerusalem, namely uh, uh, James, and it's clear that his letter is intended for Christians. For to be a Christian is to be called, is to be loved in God, and is to be kept for Jesus Christ. There's a past, present, and future element. We've been called, we are loved in God, and we are kept for the Lord Jesus Christ. And what in summary does Jude say to Christians and therefore what does he say now to us? Well, he makes it abundantly clear what he wants to say and it's in his purpose statement, which is from verse 3 where he writes, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. The point of Jude's letter is clear. You don't have to do some mystical meditation to work out what this is about. He's just told you, I want you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. That is the word of God to us this morning. Now, the word we translate contend has the sense of intense struggle. It's to quote, and this is from a Greek dictionary, it's to exert intense effort on behalf of something. It was often used by the Greeks to speak about athletics, how you would put in a really good effort, you want to win the prize, you want to compete against the others. Because we love the truth of God's revelation, we not only rejoice in it, but we also therefore contend for it, to guard and to maintain it. It's a little bit like when I got married to Stacy. I didn't just promise to love and cherish her as long as we both shall live, I also promised to forsake all others, which is actually one of the ways in which a husband can love and cherish his wife as long as they both shall live. It's both delighting in and therefore contending for the thing that I value more than almost anything else. And notice also it's not my faith or your faith, it's the faith. We constantly get this wrong, don't we? It is the faith singular that as Christians we are to contend for. The New Testament speaks of one particular faith. It's not a subjective thing that changes flavour to individuals. There is one faith, one body of historic and spiritually discerned truth, the final revelation of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ in accordance with the Scriptures, the faith to which all genuine believers give wholehearted assent and obedience. Originally, of course, as I'm sure you know, that faith came to those who taught and wrote down the content of biblical faith, namely the faithful Jews that Jesus made into his original church. See, the term holy ones uh, it can also be translated saints. It's a term that in the first instance refers to faithful Jews. Of course, throughout the New Testament, the term is expanded to include all followers of Jesus, both Jew and Gentile, but originally it's to the faithful Jews who actually comprise the apostles and the members of the original church on the day of Pentecost, those to whom God gave his full and final revelation originally. So the faith we contend for is 
not the faith that was revealed to the prophet Muhammad 600 years after Jesus. It is not the faith of a succession of popes that they have formulated over time. It is not the faith that was delivered to Joseph Smith in historically rather dubious circumstances. It was not the faith that was supposedly delivered to the Watchtower Society of the 20th century. It was the faith entrusted, or better translation, delivered once for all to God's holy people, which as we know is now recorded in Scripture. Now, why does Jude see it as necessary that Christians should contend for this faith? Well, here's why. Verse 4, because certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality and therefore, I think, deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. So secretly, deceptively, ungodly people, and notice it's people, it's not the teaching, it's the teacher, people, perverting the truth of the gospel in order to allow for immorality and or denying the sole authority of Jesus as God alone. Perhaps by setting up something else that in effect becomes a rival authority, who knows? In other words, though, of course, we are dealing with what the Bible calls, time and again, false teachers. That's why we must contend for the faith. Now, this can be a little hard for us to swallow because in the immortal words of my favourite Christian rapper, Shai Lin, for some people it seems the only heresy is saying that there's heresy. Cool song. Check it out, by the way. But friends, a sad part of life prior to the eternity that the Bible asserts over and over is simply that this is going to be reality. False teachers will be a constant problem for the church of God in 2023 and in every other year that passes until Jesus returns. So what does Jude reckon we should do about it? Well, to put it simply, first off, we need reminding. And we need fairly constant reminding that destruction is the end that false teachers are heading for. It's not the false teaching, but the false teacher who is, and don't you dare doubt it, heading for hell. Verse 5, though you already know this, he says, I want to remind you, I want to keep this on the radar, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. Now, that's an obvious and well-known truth for anyone who's ever read Exodus. People who know the truth but persist in unbelief and rejection of God will, of course, face his holy and righteous wrath. It's the part of the gospel that you always want to see downplayed, don't you? We don't want to talk about the wrath of God and the judgment for unbelievers. But uh, it's stupid to avoid it because it's just all over the Bible. But that Exodus thing, that wasn't just a, a one-off incident. It's actually the generally observable way that things are. You see, you can go outside the Bible and look at pop culture. Well, at least you can if you're a Jew in the first century. And you can see it there too. So Jude then alludes to some other literature outside the Scriptures in order to remind us that judgment is a reality for unbelievers. Uh, for those of you that are, are interested or a little bit nerdy, uh, what Jude alludes to is uh, two things we can discern. Uh, a piece of writing called the Assumption of Moses, sometimes called the Testament of Moses. 
as well as this other bit of uh, pop culture literature called the Book of One Enoch. They're not actually part of the Bible, of course, but because they include theological reflections from the people whose culture was heavily influenced by the Bible, it's not surprising that at a general level you see similar basic themes. And so verse 6, probably alluding to the Book of Enoch, Jude says, quote, And the angels who do not keep their positions of authority but abandon their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. So even angels who are disobedient face judgment. And then we come back to the Bible, verse 7, in a similar way. Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who will suffer the punishment of eternal fire. Both in God's word and even in the popular culture of God's people, we see time and again that judgment for unbelievers, be they humans or angels, is a reality. And of course, we're warned to avoid it. But of course, here we're dealing with more than just unbelievers, people who remain in their rebellion against God. We're dealing with false teachers who look like believers. And so Jude goes the next step, verse 8. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. Uh, Polluting their own bodies, by the way, probably refers to sexual immorality. Remember, Jesus said it is not what goes into the body that actually defiles a person. So it's not smoking or eating unhealthy food, those things are unwise, but but that's not what polluting the body is in the Bible. Uh, But when referring to sexual immorality, the Apostle Paul comments that all other sins a person commits are outside their own body. And Jude has just been speaking about the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah, which of course was sexual, hence the polluting of bodies here refers to sexual sin. They give a license for sexual immorality ever wondered why you always have a sort of high degree of sexual scandal with the mega preachers whose theology is just a little bit iffy? Something that can prove a teacher false, and sadly this was the case with the great Ravi Zacharias not that that long ago, is gross sexual misconduct. But not only that, there's the rejecting of authority as evidenced by a cavalier attitude towards celestial beings, which almost certainly means angels, given that in the very next verse he's talking about an angel. One of the common roles of angels in the scriptures is that they either deliver or uphold or put into effect the words of God. Jude has just mentioned Sodom and Gomorrah, where, if you know the story, some angels, in effect, gave a dire warning to the people there not to pursue their sinful indulgence. Sadly, the angels were ignored and Sodom and Gomorrah went up in flames. So I think the idea here is something like, whereas the godly teacher will derive his authority from careful, humble and obvious dependence on the authority, that is the word of God, the false teacher, by way of contrast, asserts his own authority, perhaps by using rather than sitting under the word of God. Uh, To highlight this contrast, to to flesh out this picture, Jude again makes reference to a bit of Jewish pop culture, uh, this time the Testament of Moses, and he says from verse 9, but even the archangel Michael 
When he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. There's deference to authority, even with Satan, the one guy you should easily be able to rebuke. No, no, even then, I show my respect to the authority of God. Verse 10, yet these people slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, as rational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them. And now we're back to the Bible, continuing verse 11. They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. And by the way, if you don't know any of those parts of the Bible, please come and see me afterwards because I'd delight to give you the crash course. But basically, what we're seeing here is that on the strength of their own dreams, their own understanding, they sit arrogantly over what God has made clear time and again, These teachers are in it for their own personal gain, their own goals, which is just about as opposite to Jesus as you can get. Now, hopefully at this point you're thinking, gee, Judy's really putting the boot in here. Why are we going on and on about this stuff? We kind of get the message already, right? And by the way, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go through it, but there's actually another whole paragraph where he gets even more brutal. He goes absolutely hellfire in this harsh condemnation against false teachers. Is he using a sledgehammer to crack a peanut? Is it unnecessary overkill for Jude to be absolutely sort of railing against these false teachers in the way that he does? Well, friends, in my experience, when the Word of God pushes something really hard, it's usually because our sinful hearts are quite accustomed to pushing back. Are you, and am I, exercising discernment in what you read and hear and see from various sources. Can you and I at times be guilty of letting the very right notion that we're to be charitable, loving and kind somehow become a convenient reason for never doing another very noble thing which is speaking out against a patently false teacher. We've got a problem with our culture. It happens all the time. We're lacking in discernment. We don't want to say things negative, even though the Bible goes nuts at it. It's not contrary to being a non-judgmental, merciful, loving person to call out the very things that compromise the non-judgmental, merciful love that we know in the gospel, the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, it's consistent to do that. We have the problem often that we're hard-hearted but soft-headed. We really need to flip that one around. Much better to be hard-headed and soft-hearted. Now, we'll come back to this issue in a moment when Jude moves on to the practical ways where to approach both false teachers and those influenced by them. But there's one more important thing Jude wants us to consider first. A final characteristic of the false teacher... Another thing we need to be especially aware of in order to contend for the faith is that there's a vast difference between one's natural instincts and what the Spirit of God shows to be authoritative. Verse 17, But, dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires... These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not 
have the Spirit. Notice, firstly, here, Jude sees the authority, the measure of what is true and reliable as coming from the teaching of the apostles. And the apostolic gospel itself includes the warning about the ever-present threat of false teachers. The clear implication is that aligning yourself with the teaching of the apostles, which of course is what we have recorded for us in our, our New Testament, is part of what it means to have the Spirit. To reject or pervert the apostolic faith is to follow mere natural instincts and to not, therefore, have the Spirit. In fact, the way you can discern if a church is truly a spiritual church is not by all manner of visually spectacular supernatural phenomenon. It's not by what makes you feel elated and ecstatic and powerful, particularly during congregational singing, which so often erroneously gets called worship. Nor is it by what makes you feel somber and pious in a spooky building, very formal. That's not spiritual either. It's by whether or not the apostolic gospel, as given in Scripture, is the thing they're always on about. Uh, many years ago, when I was doing MTS, Ministry Training Strategy, I uh, had the job of running a, a little Bible study at a residence for the University of Wollongong. There were a lot of overseas students that came to this particular uh, residence, and at one point I was talking about something similar to this, and there were these two lovely American girls, but they were very uh, affronted by what I said, and they came to me, and one of them said, my dad is very spiritual. You know, he waits for the inner prompting of the Holy Spirit, even late on a Saturday night, to discover what he's going to preach on the next morning. Now, I didn't say it, of course, but I, I felt like saying, well, I can think of 66 really good things that the Spirit would love him to preach on the next morning, and doing so would be truly spiritual rather than, let's be honest, following what is in the end natural instinct. I pleaded with those girls to reconsider what the Word was making clear, but it can be extremely difficult, very difficult to convince someone that they're in dangerous territory when the whole premise of their theology is thought to be genuinely spiritual, but yet so patently obviously relegates the Word of God to a distant second place at best. And when a person is very deep into a scam, it can be hard for them to realise. That's why the scammers keep doing their thing. They keep catching people. Perhaps that's why Jude is just so adamant and so brutal in reminding us over and over that hell is the destination of the false teacher. And perhaps that's why also, thankfully, he gives us what we need to ensure that we don't get scammed. And also how we can help those who might be called up caught up by false teachers. And that's what we see at the end of his letter. The first thing to remember is that being a follower of Jesus is about waiting for the wonderful bliss that will be ours in eternity, such that we don't get sucked into thinking that we can, we can achieve perfection or complete fulfilment here on earth. Verse 20, but you, there's the contrast, but you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ 
to bring you to eternal life. One of the biggest telltale signs of a false teacher is they will promise health, wealth, success, you know, in whatever ventures you're taking. They'll promise that in the here and now. If you have enough faith, if you speak enough positive words, life will be really good for you here and now. Whereas the genuine gospel leaves room for heaven. If you live your best life now, that means you're heading for hell. To again quote, quote Shailene in, in False Teachers. Now you'll notice there in the slide I've left a couple of gaps. That's because it's important to emphasise that the your here is plural. He's speaking to the church, your, whereas the faith here is in the singular, for all of you with the one holy faith. Jude is saying, you guys, yous, peoples, build yourselves up together in the faith which you've got, which is most holy. Now, can anyone think of something where like a whole bunch of Christians together seek to build one another up in the apostolic faith? Oh, that's right. Here we are. Good on you for being here, face-to-face church. That's what God, that's the means that God has put in place for us to be ready for the final day. This one's going to sting a bit, but I'm just going to say it anyway. It is very often the case that people who are flaky at church are flaky in their theology. They're at a greater risk of being duped by false teachers. Brothers and sisters, keep room in your theology for perfection not on earth, but in heaven, and keep gathering together as a top priority. There's a New Year's resolution. Decide once to attend in-person church. Don't decide every Sunday whether you will or not. Decide once if you're a Christian, you'll be there. Next up, how do we address those who might be getting sucked in or even themselves perverting the faith that was once for all delivered to God's people? Well, when it comes to this problem, Jude seems to have, I think, three levels of severity in mind. Verse 22, be merciful to those who doubt, save others by snatching them from the fire, to others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Obviously, brothers and sisters, the first port of call is always to lovingly show mercy. That is the default position of anyone who's a follower of Jesus, to sympathise, to help, to show the gentleness and lowliness that is at the very heart of our Lord who died in order to spare us from the hell that we deserve. Brothers and sisters, let this be on public record. I will never, nor will any mature Christian ever, condemn you for having doubts about your relationship with God through Christ. All Christians at some time or another can echo the call of that desperate man who said, Lord, I believe, help me overcome my unbelief. If some teaching or some notion, maybe even in your own head, has led you to doubt, you're never to be ashamed or embarrassed about that. Uh, Jesus is perfect. You're not. I'm not. It can be hard, especially for children raised in strong Christian families, where the parents are rightly you know, leaders and influencers in their church, because those children can then feel they're, they're not allowed to struggle with doubts. That would be unfitting and embarrassing. But I can assure you that you won't be alone and that you can find great help and comfort in talking to, to me, if you want, or a trusted Christian friend about any doubts with doctrine or theology or, or the gospel. 
For others who are in more serious trouble and at risk of losing their salvation, which is what can happen if you get duped into heretical teaching of a false teacher, then the loving thing to do is, what does it say? Snatch them out of the fire. It's got a bit of clout to it, this, this one. It could look something like, brother, if you keep buying into that prosperity gospel nonsense, then when the storm hits, you're going to find your house was built on the sand and you'll likely walk away. Sometimes it's hard to convince people of this, but when you've seen it, you suddenly feel quite passionate about it. And I've seen it a number of times and I am passionate about it. Don't underestimate, because the Bible doesn't underestimate, the, the destructiveness of false teachers. But finally, for those who are far gone and who might be professing a perverted gospel and therefore likely being ungodly in their behaviour and or their doctrine, we're right to express fear and to even express hatred at such ungodliness. I heard recently of a person who was really into sinful perfectionism, the idea that you can be absolutely perfect and flawless in the here and now. Not surprisingly, he got divorced not long after he got into that particular way of thinking. Now, of course, there is still to be mercy. That, that, that's a given if we're followers of the most merciful Lord. We're to hope and pray they'll repent and recommit to the truth of the gospel, but there comes a point where it needs to be left entirely in God's hands. Approach with great caution. Finally, and it's nice to have something positive at the, the end of a fairly damning letter, one of the simplest litmus tests for whether a teaching is biblical or unbiblical is whether or not it puts God consistently at the centre, making God the one who acts and works more than making us the ones who act and work. Uh, so much Roman Catholic theology, for an example, is that you do the confession, you do the penance, you partake in the mass, you partake in the sacraments, and the church, the clergy, the saints do the absolution. They provide the sacraments, they issue the indulgences, they provide the mediation. It's you, you, people, people, people. It's harder to see the dependence on Jesus and the work of God being at the centre of that theological picture. You see the same thing in Pentecostalism. It's your experience along with the sleek production of the so-called worship that becomes the conduit through which God's Holy Spirit can then finally move and do his supernatural work. Man so often takes the starring role whilst God is there as the supporting cheerleader. But notice how God-centred Jude's well-known benediction is. Verse 24, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling... And to present you, notice he does all the action, we're completely passive. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God our Saviour be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Amen. This is a very, very global, universal kind of a statement. God is the one who keeps you from stumbling on account of the personal work of Jesus Christ our Lord. And that means that whilst it's important we treat our Christian teachers with respect and dignity, we've really got to avoid putting them on pedestals. The power and authority belong ultimately to God 
And the centrality of God, the need to rely on the Lord Jesus will be really transparent in the theology of any sound Christian teacher. In 2018, the most popular sermon then on YouTube, the sermon that Oprah Winfrey claimed changed her life, mentions Jesus a grand total of zero times. Not surprisingly, it's by a patently false teacher. And brothers and sisters, Jude teaches teaches us that Christians are not only to hold to the apostolic faith, but to contend for it. And that involves, it can't help but involve, learning to identify and obviously reject false teachers. This is part of Christian maturity. It's something that's in our kit bag. It means, of course, being committed to building ourselves up together in the apostolic Christ-centred faith, one of the big ticket items for which, of course, is church. And, of course, where it comes up, to seek to help or correct those who are so influenced. I'll be the first to admit it's not particularly glamorous or exciting, but it's absolutely God-honouring. And it's more important than the majority of New Year's resolutions we usually come up with. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that your word gives us all that we need for life and godliness and the walk, the path that you've planned for us in advance. We thank you that you warn us with truthful warnings, the warnings we need to hear about the danger and the reality, the real danger and reality of false teachers. Heavenly Father, may we so love and value and cherish the goodness of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and the faith that was delivered once for all, that we therefore cannot help but contend for it, to be discerning, to point out and to expose the error of the false teaching and even more importantly, of the false teacher. Please, Father, may we so rely and depend on you more than any other person in order to present us faultless before your throne with exceeding joy. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.